Climate change policy is in for a rocky ride in 2021, and sometimes it's hard to make sense of where Australia stands on climate change. How are emissions going? And what do our politicians need to do to get to net zero emissions by 2050? Here to help us make sense of it all in only 20 minutes is our Energy Program Director, Tony Wood. Welcome, Tony. Thanks, Kat. Good to be talking to you this afternoon. So, Tony, you have a new piece out in the latest Griffith Review, and it's called Remaking the Balance, Accords and Antagonisms, Making Progress in the Combat for Climate Policy. So, Tony, in your piece, you give a short lay of the land of where Australia is at right now in climate change policy. So briefly, where are we at? Sometimes it depends upon whether you want to see the good news or the bad news. <laughs> um, there's a bit of both. Where we're at so far, uh, at the moment at least in 2021, the beginnings thereof, is that emissions in Australia have been falling consistently since 2015, such that the Commonwealth Government's current target, which is to reduce emissions by 26% below 2005 levels by 2030, is well and truly possible and in fact is becoming increasingly probable. We do have policy, po uh, political parties and governments in every state and territory in Australia committed to net zero by 2050 in some cases, even before that. On the other side of it, it seems to be therefore somewhat bizarre that we remain embroiled in an ongoing climate change debate uh, really around what has been for quite a while a really ugly and muddy Battlefield. So Australia's emissions have dropped by 16% over the last 15 years. Isn't that a good thing? It's certainly not a bad thing. <laughs> the trick is that we started a long way back relative to many parts of the world and we need to do a lot more. And it depends how you calculate these things, but that's the case. The 16% reduction in emissions from 2005 to 2020 occurred almost entirely in one sector of our economy, and that is land use and land use clearing and forestry, which is a very long term, but it didn't include, it didn't incur much in all the other rest of the economy. And the problem with land use and land use clearing, um, yes, you can get a vicious benefit by not clearing some land you are otherwise going to clear, but you can only not clear the land once. <laughs> and uh, that's a bit of a thing to get your head around, but that's the reality of it. And so what that means is that the success we've had in reducing emissions by 60%, or another way to think about that, Kat, is about six and a half million tonnes a year. We've been reducing our emissions, our annual emissions. We're projected, because we're not going to get that land use um, benefit back again, for the next 10 years, between now and 2030, to reduce emissions by 3.5 million tonnes a year. That's not that's only about half what we've already done. But of course, that's because we're now going to start to face the more difficult things. So 6.5 up until now, 3.5 for the next 10 years. Problem. If we want to get anywhere near net zero by 2050, which is another 20 years after 2030, obviously, we would have to average every year for that next 20 years, 24 million tonnes a year. So that puts in perspective, we are really going to have to put our foot on the accelerator if we're going to do anywhere near that sort of target, which is consistent with what would many parts of the world is now committing to. So even I can tell there that the math doesn't quite stack up. So I'm wondering, because you said that land use is one area where it's decreased emissions, but for, for reasons that you've outlined, but I'm wondering, is there anywhere else that's in decreasing and where is it increasing on that? Where are we going to have to cut back the most? Well, look, at the moment, electricity, which is responsible for about a third of our emissions is doing pretty well. It's, it's been accelerating. In fact, at the moment, the good news I mentioned before that we are on track to achieve our 2030, 2030 target 
is largely being driven by electricity generation, and in particular, the ex- extraordinary adoption of rooftop solar by Australian households, to be fair, with some degree of support by both the Commonwealth Government and the State Government. So that's that one's going okay. The difficulty is that the rest of the economy, the other two-thirds of our emissions, are either flat or increasing. So I'll give you one specific example, transport. Transport went down last year, as you'd expect, because of the COVID lockdown, but unfortunately, most likely it's going to increase again. And until we see a rapid uh, take-up of electric vehicles, and all that electricity itself then comes from um, low emission technology, electricity, that's going to stay the same. And industrial emissions are just as hard. The really tricky question is how we go about that because none of those other sectors, not only are they not reducing their emissions, but there are no policy constraints which would cause them to do so. Yeah, it's a really tricky one and and it's hard to cut back on things that you're kind of reliant on as well, especially um, after COVID, you know, we'll probably see an increase in people driving to work. So I want to move on to the big picture policy stuff because I think both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese um, have their work cut out for them on climate policy. You know, Scott Morrison is sometimes accused of inaction on climate change. I want to cut through some of the rhetoric there. Is he actually moving on climate change and what is the current coalition strategy on climate? Well, the politics of climate change tells you everything you need to know about the policies on climate change. I won't sort of regurgitate the history of the climate war. People have written books around that topic. I think it's true to say, as other people smarter than I have commented on, that um, you know the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is probably more of a pragmatic politician than an ideological politician. What I've observed, Kat, over the last 12, 15 months is that he has been subtly but consistently changing the coalition government's rhetoric. Now, in the political sense, rhetoric is actually really important because he doesn't want to end up as another casualty, dead body on the battlefield of of leaders who lost the climate change debate. So I think what he's been doing is opening up the options for the coalition government to move forward faster or slower, depending upon how he sees the politics emerging. And he's doing basically two things. The first thing is to stand on the government's record. So he can say with a degree of confidence, we've met our 2020 target, we're on track to meet our 2030 target. Therefore, you should have confidence that whatever target we set, we will meet. And that's a fair enough call. Um, What he's a bit more concerned about is this idea of committing to net zero by 2050. So what he's then doing to sort of try and fill the gap between having that degree of certainty is to complement the idea that we do stand on our record as a government, is to say, look, we're going to do this with technology and not taxes. Now. One might argue that we should be doing it with technology and taxes, that this is a false dichotomy. That's the argument. Now, both of those arguments, standing on a record, doing it with technology, have some validity, as a lot of political statements always do, but they also only have a limit. And so it's when those limits get, um, I think, exposed that we'll see some challenges for the coalition government and we'll see how the politics play out between now and the next election. And I think one of those technologies we've talked about on this podcast before is certainly the gas-led recovery that the coalition has been pushing. And we've talked a little bit about why it doesn't stack up in your previous reports, which you can read for free online on our website. But what happens if we stay down this path of prioritising gas instead of a broader climate strategy? Well, I guess a couple of things will emerge if we continue to work on the, on the basis that we can have this gas-led recovery. The first is we'll probably invest public funding, certainly private funding, in areas that end up being what we call stranded assets. That is, we build this stuff and then in 10 or 15 years' time, we just don't need it anymore because we've moved away from gas. The risk is that we'll end up leading to more emissions rather than fewer and that we'll end up with some assets which could be unstranded. And that's a real problem 
for investors. And that doesn't mean to say that gas won't have a role. Gas will have a role, but it will be a backstop to renewable energy. And that's a very different story as to how that's going to play out. Now, turning to the opposition, and I mean, Anthony Albanese also has his work cut out for him. And, you know, they have announced some policies recently, but time is ticking for Labor to really develop a clear climate policy framework. What needs to change for their policies to be effective here? In some ways, it seems a bit strange to even say, it seems to me that Albo is actually in a more difficult position than ScoMo. (laughs) The reason I say that is because even though he's almost certainly on the right side of the broad debate in terms of committing to a long-term zero emissions reduction strategy, he's got two very significant problems. Partly, they arise out of the loss of the last election in 2019, from which I don't think the opposition has yet recovered, um, and they've certainly not been able to frame a policy. So when they talk about, oh, my goodness, we're going to throw away a policy, well, at the moment they haven't got a policy. All they've got is a target, and turning that into a policy is their big challenge. seems to me that, therefore, there are two critical elements here, and, of course, now this challenge will fall largely to Chris Bowen, who only last week was made the shadow minister. The first thing is that they've got to provide enough substance to their target for it to be credible, but avoid getting bogged down in economic detail. How much is the, is the roast leg of lamb going to cost you in 2050 under this policy? That sort of stuff. It's a, it's a fool's errand to try and make those sorts of forecasts, but the government will try and skewer the opposition on those sort of questions. So that's one of the challenges, and they failed it last time around. The second thing is they must do is they must support the concept of structural. So how, how does the government support structural adjustment? What that means is those people in our community, and there are some parts of the country where there are more rather than fewer. We know where they are mostly because they're carbon-intensive jobs. How does the government address the question, well, what happens to my job? I'm not against action on climate change, but I'm certainly against losing my job. And I think the big challenge, and it's not that it's not possible to do, but the the opposition has to create the narrative that isn't just, well, trust us, we're going to have a just transition and you'll get a job. They've got to have a real one. And I think the question is, how do they do that? Because uh, without that, I think we're going to see one thing. One is, and that is that nothing's going to change unless the opposition can believe, and Albo believes he's got a policy to win the next election on climate change. Or alternatively, uh, Morrison believes he's going to lose the next election without one. And until that politics change, it's hard to see the policy changing very much. Yes, yeah, ScoMo and Albo certainly do have a lot of work ahead of them in the climate area. And I mean, it's worth mentioning your report from last year on green steel um, because I thought it was a very valuable contribution in terms of addressing that issue of moving to renewables, but also providing jobs for p- workers in those kind of heavy industries. So turning a little bit to the international scene, because we've had a bit of movement in the United States lately, and Joe Biden is now in office as the President of the United States. And one of the first things he did was sign back onto the Paris Agreement. And I'm wondering, will the change in the US position influence Australia's own politicians to really make efforts to meet the targets from the Paris Agreement? At the moment, it's a little difficult to tell. Clearly, the broad dynamic has changed and there will be pressure on Australia. How much that international pressure translates into domestic political pressure then becomes the important question. You know, if you look at if you look at the US comparison to what we were talking about on Australia's situation, the US is currently on target to achieve a 37% reduction in its emissions by 2030. And even then, a lot of the environmental groups are pushing for Biden 
to be more aspirational. Now, I don't, at the moment, it seems that the Biden government will not introduce an economy wide carbon price. It's messy, it's complicated, and they would still, but it seems like they have some of the same political challenges that governments in Australia have with that approach. And so by announcing that they're going to do all this with a whole range of regulations, um, executive orders from the president, it then gives the current Australian government a little bit of cover because they could say, well, you've just rejoined the club that we've been a member of um, all the way through. We absolutely agree that we're going to do with technology and not taxes, very similar to what you're doing. And it's interesting in that context to note that Angus Taylor, the Australian Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister has already connected with John Kerry, who is the climate change envoy for Joe Biden, and have agreed to talk about uh, and set up some structured talks talks about how we might uh, compare notes on technology issues. So I think you know this the Australian government will seek to position itself to say, look, we're broadly doing what the US is doing. The trick will be if the US really starts to get very strongly committed, because Biden's already committed to net zero by 2050, which Morris is not yet prepared to do. And the Biden government has already announced a leaders group meeting in April. And assuming that Morrison gets invited to that, that will be one of the points where we'll start to see some of this pressure. So I think, you know, in that context, there will be pressure. I think our prime minister has created some opportunities, but they're gates that he may or may not walk through. And I think that the international, uh, there's a lot to do yet on the international scene before it becomes clear as to whether that will translate into real domestic political pressure on the coalition government before the next election, remembering that the international conference where a lot of this is really going to take place is in November in Glasgow, assuming COVID allows that. And yet we may very well see an Australian election before that. And it's really interesting, I think, because it'll be great to check in with you um, through the year on this particular topic and see what changes happen because we've got this leaders meeting in April and we've got COP26 in November in Glasgow. Now, my final question for you, and it's related to that, you know, huge international conference, what do you want to see happen before then? In addition to saying very clearly that a net zero target by 2050 is absolutely achievable, which Prime Minister Morrison is on the record as saying, the government, partly is associated with a recommendation from the Finkel Review of 2017 and partly as a result of the negotiations at this Paris Agreement process, has committed to uh, delivering a long-term emissions reduction strategy by the conference. Now, originally, that was supposed to have happened last year ahead of the conference, which was supposed to have happened in December in Glasgow. That's all been rolled back a year. And so the government's made the commitment and Minister Taylor has recommitted that we will have that strategy before the Council of the the Conference of the Parties meeting in Glasgow in November. So I think we'll see that. The important question for investors, for all those businesses who have already made their own commitments to net zero, for all of those like myself and, and others who are looking for clear direction here, is what sort of detail we see inside that. I don't expect to see uh, an economy-wide carbon price. I think what we will see is a mixture of sector-based. So instead of economy-wide, we'll see a, a, a set of policies directed excuse me, at individual sectors, electricity, transport, industrial emission, and so forth. The consequence will be these will be second or third best policies, but they will deliver progress and they will be broadly heading in the right direction. And at least for a while, they'll create some momentum in that direction. Now, they're not going as fast as we need to go, but at least we've got our vehicle, we've got a thing that could look like a vehicle in place and we're starting to drive it. So there will be progress. It will be lumpy. It will cost more than it should, but I think we're going to head in the right direction. And eventually, 
as we see the consequences of doing it with second and third best policies, we'll realize what we're doing and we will return to first best policies in the longer term. But I think that will be a longer term issue. Thank you so much, Tony, for being on the podcast. I know that our listeners really enjoy and appreciate the climate podcast especially. So we'll definitely check back with you through the year. But I just want to say if you enjoyed listening to this podcast today, please do hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app, whether it's Spotify or Apple. And also please leave us a rating or review. We'd really appreciate it. You can also find us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and on social media at Grattan Institute. Now for all of those listening at home, I hope you're doing really well in the new year and we've got a cracky year of podcasts looking ahead for you. So thank you so much for listening and take care.